Well, friends, our text this morning will be Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 43, 1 through 7. And I also want to let kids know and parents that kids who are elementary school age and younger, we have a time, this is our third Sunday of the month, so we have a time for those who desire to go and there's some uh, time of singing together, uh, truths of, of God's word and also some teaching there for the kids. So whoever desires to go, go on ahead now. Others, of course, are welcome to stay. And I'll begin by reading our text and then praying for God's blessing on our time. This is the word of the Lord. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers... They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word. We pray for your Holy Spirit and the spiritual illumination that he alone can give to open up our eyes, to see glory in your scriptures, to open up our ears and to soften our hearts, to receive from you what you have to say to us. We pray that I would have clarity and boldness and faithfulness in my proclamation. We pray that we would see your glory in Christ high and lifted up, and that we would respond with faith and with obedience and with comfort and where necessary with repentance, all to the end that together we would more and more be conformed to the likeness of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning's text speaks to us about God's love. You don't have to walk more than three feet into a Christian bookstore. Do they even exist anymore? I don't know if you can even walk three feet into a Christian bookstore. Or listen to more than 30 seconds of Christian radio to hear something about God's love. But often we have such a shallow understanding of this love. Uh, Many people like to talk about God's love, but when they talk about it, it's cheap sentimentality. It's just a big hazy picture of God as a very nice kind of omni-affirmer in the sky. Our big buddy. And we who know better might react to that kind of shallow thoughtlessness by overlooking God's love. Retreating into focusing on attributes that seem deeper and edgier 
like His holiness or His sovereignty. Cotton candy Christianity doesn't come in those flavors. And so maybe we feel like we distinguish ourselves from all the superficial talk of God's love. Or others may like hearing about God's love in principle, but we don't really functionally believe it. The way we actually conceive of God, the way we actually think about Him, He's all holiness, all sovereignty, all justice, and there just isn't much room left for love in our picture of God. Well, God's love is not boring. It is not shallow. It is not blandly non-offensive. Neither is it an afterthought among his attributes, overshadowed by what he really wants to do, which is to be just and wrathful. Today, through his word, God is inviting us into the depths of his heart to see his love in a breathtaking way, to see a love that for his own triumphs over judgment. Here's his word for us this morning in concise form, in a nutshell. Here it is. Fear not. Deep, dark providences expose the depths of covenant love. Fear not. Deep, dark providences expose the depths of covenant love. We're going to build toward this picture by looking at three life-giving features of God's covenant love. Three life-giving features of God's covenant love that take us through these seven verses. The first one is the origin of covenant love. The origin of covenant love. And this is what we see in verse 1 and verse 7. Okay, verse 1 and verse 7. I'll read those two. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then in verse 7, everyone, he's talking about bringing back everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The first two words in our text are bold, highlighted, and underlined. But now. The Bible has some very important buts. Where there's... One way things are going. The darkness of what sin has brought about is going in one direction. And there is a big but, a hard pivot into light and beauty because of God's gracious intervention. And this is one of those important but God moments in the Bible. If you were with us last week, you heard about what happened at the end of Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 25. The Lord's gloomy prediction of judgment against Israel because of their persistent sin. They kept on Sinning, They kept on ignoring his good teaching and laws in rebellion against him. And so he's talking about, as though it had already happened, but he's projecting past the exile, about how he brought punishment in the form of Babylon to invade them and conquer them and drag them into exile in a foreign land. But even that didn't do the trick. And we saw we were left off in verse 25 of Isaiah 42. That they still, that they didn't learn from that. So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. The Lord judged like fire against his people and they did not take it to heart. They would not learn to fear and trust and obey God. And we might think, well, that's it for Israel. 
Exile. They're done. We might think that they've sinned their way out of God's favor and God's plan. We might think that He's abandoning them. And they might have certainly drawn those same conclusions for themselves, hearing the prediction of exile that the Lord gave through Isaiah. They had failed the covenant. But not with Yahweh. Not with our God. Not with the covenant-making Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And with this God, as James 2.13 tells us, mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's how one commentator describes the hard pivot from the end of chapter 42 into the beginning of 43. This big, but now. He says this, A new day is at hand. God will act on behalf of His chosen people out of the purest grace. End quote. Our whole text is about the love of God that is going to stop their free fall. That's going to catch them and keep them like a giant safety net. And our text, you may have thought it was weird that our first point covers verses 1 and 7. Our text is structured like a target. So the theme of verse 1 is similar to that of verse 7. That's the outer ring. And then verses 2 and verses 5 and 6 have similar themes to each other. That's kind of the middle ring. And finally, the bullseye, which is kind of the beating heart of the text, is verses 3 to 4, getting right there into the center. So we're going to move through it that way, from the outer ring into the center in verses 3 and 4. And what God means to do in this outer ring, verses 1 and 7, is to stress His relationship with Israel. This is the basis for all the promises He's going to make and all the things He's going to say about them in the rest of the text. And here He describes Himself in four ways relative to his struggling and suffering people. The first is in both verses 1 and 7. He is their creator. He says that he's the one who created them and formed them in verse 1 and verse 7, whom I created for my glory and formed and made. Of course, Genesis 1 tells us that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. But here he's talking about how he created and formed his people as a people. They only exist as a people by his doing. He established them as a nation when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And the word form that's used in both of these verses in particular talks about creation like the imagery is of a craftsman or potter. Now there's some fascinating video. Some of you may be skilled craftsmen or women who can who can make amazing things, works of art. There are fascinating videos you can watch on YouTube of people working with wood or leather, very skilled people making beautiful things. And you can watch the detail and the carefulness that excellent craftsmanship requires. This is God, how he brought his people into being. The second relationship he stresses in verse 1 is that he's their redeemer. He says, I have redeemed you. Again, the exodus is in view. He's the one who brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, going to war against their oppressors, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, with plagues that caused the whole world to sit up and take notice. He has brought them out of bondage to be his own people. Thirdly, again, in verses 1 and 7, he calls them by name. In verse 1 it says, I have called you by name. And in verse 7 it says, they are called by my name. 
And I believe this combines the concepts of election and adoption. Election and adoption. Calling is his choice to bring them near, which is motivated not in any perception of beauty in them, but nothing but sheer grace that he has chosen them to be his. And by name, we're talking about family language here. Name. He has brought them into his household. Just like in verse 6, he's going to call them sons and daughters. It's interesting that in the very same way, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5 combines election and adoption for us who are in Christ. It says, In love, He, God the Father, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. The fourth relationship He stresses here in verse 1 is that He has made them His own. He says, You are Mine. And again, what we have here is reference to the Exodus. This is covenant language. Before all the plagues, before the Exodus deliverance, God had declared His purpose for it all. And the purpose for it was to make a covenant with His chosen people. He says, right before all the plagues, in Exodus 6-7, I will take you to be My people, and I will be your God. There is that mutual belonging in the covenant. And He fulfilled that purpose on the other end of the plagues and on the other end of the Red Sea. In Exodus 19 and following, when He approached them at Sinai... And establish this covenant relationship with them. Which was really just an extension of the prior covenant he had made with Abraham, their ancestor. So God has formed his people as a people. He has saved them. He's chosen them to be members of his family. And he has called them his own. And every one of these benefits is ours in Jesus Christ as well. In Christ, we are God's workmanship. We're His new creation. Ephesians also tells us that in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We just heard about how we have adoption unto sonship. In Him we have the Lord's covenant bond. We are His people and He is our God. Doesn't it warm our hearts to see so many different ways that the Lord comes near and identifies Himself with us? But it gets even better because in verse 7, he says, this is again this creation language, he created them for his glory. I created them for my glory. The Lord's argument here is that he has so tied his identity and his reputation to his people by covenant that he, he wouldn't dare to cut them off. He is too zealous and too devoted to his own name to let sin and judgment steal his people away from him. Sometimes we might think about God's concern for his glory on, on, on one side and his concern for the welfare of his people on the other side and it's like a zero-sum matter. It's like a budget. If you're going to add something to one side, you've got to take it away from the other side. That these are competing interests in God. This is the wonder of his covenant with us. He has lined up those interests in the same column. It is precisely his zeal for his glory, for his own namesake, that assures us of his enduring commitment to us. Because of this covenant bond, grace always has the last word. There is a but now. 
Because of this covenant bond, the flames of exile we heard about in chapter 42, verse 25, are not the end of the story. And this brings us to our second feature of the Lord's covenant love. It is the endurance of covenant love. The endurance of covenant love. This is verses 2 and 5 to 6. So this is that middle ring. He says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. And then in verse 5, he says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Verse 2 describes the way out. Israel on its way out from God's promised land into exile. And verses 5 and 6 describe Israel on its way back. Back to the land. Verse 2 describes Israel's experience of the exile, and it's using mostly symbolic and poetic terms. It's not necessarily talking about the danger of literal flooding and literal flames that they will face. Although, interestingly, if you're familiar with Daniel chapter 3, we have a story, a compelling fulfillment of this verse. When... The Lord preserves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from flames in Babylon, where they've been taken into exile. But more generally, it is a wide range of disasters and troubles. These are opposite problems, fire and flood. And so the Lord is saying, from from these two extreme opposites and everything in between that will threaten you, this is the sweeping promise. I will be with you. But let's not forget why they're facing flames. What do these flames come from in verse 2? Remember, 42.25 told us where the flames came from. Whose work it is. It's the Lord's doing. He set the fire around them. And so here in verse 2, look at how dramatically he flips the script. He says, nevertheless, though I bring the, the, the flames, the fire, I will be with you. They will not overwhelm you. You will not be burned. The flames shall not consume you. And again in verse 5, he repeats the assurance, I am with you. And there we see it's on the basis of his presence with him that the exile will be reversed. He will bring them back home. This is the very thing he promised in Deuteronomy 30 verses 3 and 4 when he predicted that they would sin and that they would break the covenant and they would be sent into exile. And he says in Deuteronomy 33 and 4 that he will gather the outcasts even from, he says, the uttermost parts of heaven and all of the far-flung places where they've been scattered because of their rebellion. He will bring them back. Now Israel's land fulfills an important theological function in God's plan with them. The whole Bible tells a story of God's project to redeem man from the curse of sin that began in the garden. In a sense, the whole story of the Bible is a story of getting back to the garden, back to God's place of blessing. And so the geography is theological. In this story, the land of Canaan is a new Eden for Israel. It's the place where God has reestablished his reign over the earth. It's a place where he's reconnected heaven and earth. He's put a temple there. 
It's a place where once again he has fellowship with his people and once again they experience his blessing. And so, in light of all that, when they were cast out because of their sin, they were cast out away from the place of God's blessing. That's the theological import of being sent out of the land. Again, it's just like Adam and Eve being kicked out of Eden. But because he's always with them, bound by covenant love, he will bring them back. Now, earlier in Isaiah, in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, the Lord described the same thing, but he said that it would be a remnant. It would be a little remainder of the bulk of the people who were scattered. It would be the remnant of Israel. Here in verse 5, they're called the offspring or seed, which is language that refers to the covenant to Abraham. The New Testament makes an interesting move with these promises. In John 11.52, we learn that Jesus' death was, quote, not just for the nation, that is Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, the children of God, the true spiritual seed of Abraham, consists of the remnant of Israel, as well as God's elect among all the nations. The purpose of Christ's death was to gather all of the seed of Abraham. And this includes us. Our gathering to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ is a direct fulfillment of the Lord's promised rescue mission in verses 5 and 6. It is ethnic Israel sent out and scattered into exile. It will be one people of God from all the nations, redeemed through Christ, returning back in joy. But we are also living in the not yet of exile in verse 2. And so this is where this story becomes ours. As Gentile, I I take it most people in this room are Gentiles, not Jews. This is why the Apostle Peter writes to suffering Christians that this era in 1 Peter 1.17, he calls it the time of your exile. This is where the story has merged with us. This is our story now. We're in exile awaiting this return. And we're not fully home in God's place until Christ returns and renews the earth in peace and righteousness. Until then, we as people will struggle with floods and with flames. But here is a beautiful picture for us in the text. The Lord's covenant love means that He will be with us even in the difficult times. Even in the difficult times that He ordains And even in the difficult times that He ordains as the consequence of our sin. Can you imagine a judge that says to a convicted felon, yes, you have to go to prison for five years, but I'm coming to live in your cell with you to keep you company. That is unheard of. And notice, it's not only God being with them that He promises, but that He will govern and regulate the things that that threaten them and harm them. He says in verse 2, the rivers will not overwhelm you. The flames will not consume you. I will see to it. And you know, in the moment it feels that way, when we're going through deep trials, deep providences, that the water comes up to our necks and it, it still keeps rising. And it feels like What's going to stop this? What's going to stop this flood from overtaking me? But grace will have the last word. 
Deliverance will be the end of the story. Bring back my sons and daughters. In deep and dark times of trouble, it can feel very difficult for us to think that God is with us. It can feel to us that he's so distant, so unaware, so checked out, or so mad at us, or so much less powerful than the dangers. And how much worse is it when we know we are at fault for the troubles? Maybe we've sinned relationally and now we're reaping that harvest of a strained or broken relationship. Or maybe there have been long, uh, long-standing patterns of laziness or idolatry in our lives that have put our lives out of joint and, and finally the chickens are coming home to roost. And we see, this is my fault. Surely God is not with me now. Surely He's abandoned me. I've gone too far. Surely His grace has run out. Surely it's just me and the flames and the floods. Surely God is harsh and cold and distant toward me. He's clean out of patience and He's just eager to see me finally get what I deserve. The simple instruction from our text this morning is repeated in verses 1 and 5. This is the only thing the text tells us to do. Fear not. Fear not. Now this fearlessness is a simple little shoot sprouting from the soil. But if you see it in the context of the whole passage, it is underlain by massive and deep and sturdy root system. This one little command, fear not, is underlain by the, all the doctrines of God's commitment to his people. And even under that is all of the doctrines we know of God's eternal character, who he is. All of that produces this, this simple little command, don't be afraid. Don't be an atheist in the dark. Don't forget God in the gloomy depths of suffering. The flames and the floods are not the Lord. Yahweh, your covenant God, is the Lord. And those things all serve Him. Doesn't it strengthen our spirit to know that even the disasters, even the disasters we have brought on ourselves by our sin, are opportunities for the Lord to show us His faithful love? Because it's only in the calamity of exile that God can most fully expose the depths of His covenant love to His people. Now, I've talked a bit about problems that are our fault. But again, it's not just problems that are our fault. It's problems that happen to us. The diverse sufferings that we walk through simply because we're in a fallen world. Now, many of you saw uh, Penny Harrison's announcement of the good news recently that our cancer treatments won't require chemotherapy. And she told me last week what an assuring answer to prayer that was for her and for Scott. And many of you were praying with them about this. In view of the many layered health battles that she and Scott and other loved ones have been walking through, she had been staring down this prospect and, and praying, Lord, I don't think I can handle chemotherapy. And then she said something profound. She said, seeing the Lord answer that prayer helped give me confidence, helped remind me that he will be with me moving forward. Because she has other treatments to deal with, other ill effects that she's still going to have to walk through. But seeing how he answered that prayer reminded me, it reoriented her. Yes, he's with me. That is exactly the heart of what God's saying to us here. He is with us. We will walk through hard things, but he's with us. He's ruling over the hard things. He's made us his own by covenant. 
He's called us by His own name. And just as He's carefully fashioned us as His people, so He is carefully fashioning and shaping our trials and pains in order to bring us to the destination. The waters may rise to our neck. They may rise to our chin. They may rise to our mouth. They will not overwhelm us. Even the grave will not have victory over us. And the Lord's answer to Penny's prayer helped to reorient her to His character and His promises. His covenant love, His presence with her. John Calvin writes, If at any time doubts arise in our mind about the providence of God or about His promises, we ought to bring to remembrance the benefits which He has already bestowed on us. Remember how He's been with you. And this is exactly where the Lord goes in verse 3. Which brings us to the third feature of the Lord's covenant love. The third feature is the depth of covenant love. Verses 3 to 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So the Lord here is citing his past acts of salvation for Israel as proof of how deeply he loves them now. But he starts by calling himself the Holy One of Israel and their Savior in verse 3. Now many of you know that the holiness of God is an attribute by which he is totally devoted to himself. Which means he is set apart from all that isn't God, especially any moral blemish. God is purely pro-God. Which means he's purely anti-anything contrary to God. That's his holiness. And in, in a context where we're dealing with God and his people's sin, I would wager that most of us, when we, we wheels out the title, The Holy One, <laughs> most of us would be struck initially by the thought that this is dire news. This is an uh uh-oh moment to hear God calling himself the Holy One in light of sin. As one commentator writes, again reflecting on the end of chapter 42 that we saw last week, his holiness blazed into wrath. That's what was being described in, in verse 25. Holiness is bad news for sinners, right? Verse 3 speaks a better word. Here... Holy One of Israel means Savior. This is a common title for God in Isaiah, especially here in chapters 40 to 66. Holy One of Israel conveys, basically it means the one who is transcendent and great enough to save you. Again, this is covenant. This is pure gospel. Because of the bond of grace the Lord has made with His people, His holiness... His transcendent, incomparable devotion to Himself means not that He'll crush His people, but that He will move heaven and earth to save His people. Do you ever associate God's holiness with your salvation and well-being? This is just like Him saying in verse 7 that He's created His people for His glory. It's precisely because He's so jealous for His own name sake and his own glory. He's so zealous for his own holiness that we his people are saved and not consumed for our sin. 
Listen to the affection dripping from his words in Hosea 11, verses 8 and 9. He says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim, which are other places, other people? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, which is Israel. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Because He is God and not a man. Because He is holy and not profane. Because He is so concerned for the glory of His name, how can He give up His covenanted people? How could He come in wrath? Now we've talked about God's past acts in ensuring His future ones. Just as Penny reflected on her answered prayers and it gave her again confidence that He would still be with her, He would still hear her prayers. This is where the Lord takes us in the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4. This is the eye of the storm. This is the holy of holies of our text. This is where the absolute depths of covenant love are plumbed most fully. What does it mean that He gives Egypt, Cush, and Seba in exchange for Israel? Now, there is some uncertainty about the historical reference here. What is God talking about in terms of events in the world? Uh, These were all kingdoms that were all adjacent to each other in northeastern Africa. What I think is the best explanation is that during Isaiah's own generation, the Assyrian king Sennacherib had come knocking to conquer Judah, God's remnant nation. So he threatened to conquer them. And uh, you may know the story that it was a very close call. It looked for a time as though Jerusalem and Judah might fall to Assyria, just like the apostate northern kingdom had. But one of the ways that God rescued his people was by diverting Assyria on to other enemies. The king of Cush, Isaiah 37.9 tells us that the Assyrians went on to fight against Cush instead of Judah. And elsewhere, like in chapter 30, we read about them defeating the Egyptians as well. This seems to be most likely what the Lord is talking about. To save His covenant people, Judah, out of His covenant love, He put others in the line of fire. He wants them to know that that event in in global geopolitics, this was not a historical accident. And this may make us uncomfortable, but this is what God is saying. It is a direct reflection of the supreme value He places on His people versus other men and other nations. Because you are precious in my eyes, I'll gladly give up others to save you. How could this be? How could God do this? The Bible does teach about a common universal love that God has for all men. It's the basis for His blessings like rain and sunshine that benefit all alike, whether good or evil, whether those who know the Lord or don't. But the great majority of the Bible's talk about God's love is not that common, universally distributed love for all men without exception. Usually when the Bible's talking about God's love, and especially here, it is a sharp, 
pointed, precisely directed, laser-guided love for his chosen people. God's love discriminates. He says, you, not them. And we may struggle with this doctrine of election, God choosing a people. How could God choose some to be his people to receive salvation in Christ, thereby passing by the rest and ordaining them for destruction? How could God be so unloving? But the Bible always presents election as not a challenge to God's love, but one of the supreme expressions of God's love. Election is not the enemy of love. It is the pinnacle of love. Again, from Ephesians 1, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. Adoption. Now, this is a picture of a love that selects, a love that chooses, a love that discriminates. It is a loving thing, certainly, to become the manager of an orphanage and take all those kids under your care. But it is love on another level to pick one of those children out of all the rest and to bring them all the way into your family, into your home, into the depths of your heart. I'll put my name on you, not the others. I'll give you a seat at my dinner table permanently, not the others. I'll make you the heir of my estate, not the others. I'll give you my daily affection and attention and delight, not the others. This is what God is saying to Israel, and this is what God says to us, adopted in Christ. And this language of exchange anticipates an even greater human ransom price that the Lord will pay for his people. If the cost of men and nations was precious, what about his servant, the one in whom his soul delights? This is where these servant texts we've talked about, these suffering servant texts that appear in this part of Isaiah, they climax in chapter 53, where we hear about the servant being given up for this very reason, as a ransom, as an exchange for his people. In Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, we learn that the servant will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. He'll receive the affliction of God, the piercing, the crushing, the chastisement, the wounding, to purchase our peace by forgiveness. God has proven the depth of his covenant love by discriminating and choosing his people. He's proven it by giving others in our place. In Israel's case, other nations, for all of us, the servants atoning blood for our sin. For those of you here who aren't Christians yet, this love can be yours. Your main problem is the one that was diagnosed in Israel last week and the one that is natural to all of humanity. A heart that doesn't love God. A heart that doesn't delight in His commandments but stiffens against them. You've gone your own way. You've chosen your own gods to serve and you are the God that you serve most of all. And if this is you, God's word for you today is this. From Isaiah 30 verse 15. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. It's returning to the Lord in trust, in faith. It's resting on the Lord's servant Jesus who gave his life as a substitute for our sins so that God could redeem us into this wonderful covenant that we've been talking about, hearing about in this passage.
Return from your wandering and rest in Jesus alone. The Lord's covenant love is complete. It is full, it is overflowing in abundance. A 17th century Dutch theologian named Petrus von Maastricht was uh, what's called a reformed scholastic, which basically means these guys love to treat everything with precise, orderly, fine-toothed categories. They never met a distinction or a category they didn't like. And when he deals with God's attribute of love, he points out that love has three ingredients. First is the desire for union with the beloved. This is love saying, I want to be with you. It's the first ingredient of love, the desire for union. I want to be with you. The second ingredient is benevolence, the desire to do good for the beloved. This is love saying, I want to bless you. I want to give to you. The third ingredient of love is what he calls the joy of acquiescence, which is taking pleasure and delight in the object. This is love saying, I enjoy you. I like you. And every single one of these ingredients of love resounds from the Lord in our text. Does God want to be near his people? I will be with you. You are mine. And to every direction of the compass, he declares, give me my children back. Does God want to be good to his people? He says, I give others in exchange for you. I'm your redeemer. I won't let the flood overwhelm you. Does God delight in his people? Does God like us? This might be the hardest one to believe. You are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Now we know that this ascription of preciousness and honor to Israel is not an objective description of their state. They are not objectively lovely. They are not objectively honorable and dignified. And beloved, neither are we. We're stained and broken and shamed by our sin. How could God ever call us precious and honored? This is that third ingredient of love. This is the joy of acquiescence. The perfecting glory of God's love. In essence, he's saying, because I love you, I find you precious. Because I love you, I see honor in you. The joy of acquiescence is not God treating us according to our own merit, but according to the all-sufficient merit of Christ. This is why Maastricht says that this is that by which God is pleased in all His people, namely in sinners, on account of His Son apprehended by faith. It's on account of Christ for us that God sees us and takes pleasure in us. This is God evaluating us through the eyes of grace. More to the point, it's God evaluating us as a father looks at his children. It's Father's Day, and all good fathers, and many not so good fathers, look at their children this way. When our little ones are helping with a task or doing a chore around the house, our little ones, we hold them to a very different standard than we would for, say, a hired worker. If your little daughter is helping you with laundry and she's putting the garments into the dryer and, sh- and she's getting maybe one garment in three in there successfully, she'll receive high praise. Daddy will go, hey, you're batting 333. That's good enough for the all-star game. 
Dads fawn over the childish artwork of their kids, not because they think it belongs in the Louvre, but because my kid did it. And I love my kid. And even when our kids are at their worst, when they're cranky and impatient and showing their most terrible qualities, then we, if we're being like God, can look past the nasty and we can see, this is my precious child, even though they're acting this way. Beloved, what do you think it means that God calls us sons and daughters when he calls himself our father? Among many other things, it means that he sees us in the beloved son and so he is deeply biased in our favor. That's how he looks at us. This is the only way that our works could ever please him in the slightest. He's not fooled about our creaturely weakness, about our folly, about our mixed motives. It's not like he doesn't see that stuff. It's just that he's like a father smiling on his kid's Lego creation. My kid did that. It's all grace. It's pure grace. It's covenant loving grace. And what could better safeguard us against fear than God's special discriminating fatherly love to us? It's a love that says, I want to be with you, with you in particular, not just people in general. It's a love that says, I want to pour out my blessings on you. It's a love that says, yes, I see it all. And nevertheless, I take pleasure in you. I like you. What can floods do to us? Why should we tremble at the flames? If God is for us, if God is with us, who can be against us? We have no reason to fear Deep and dark providences only expose the depths of covenant love. The Lord has drawn us near in covenant love, a love that's chosen us from eternity, a love that's redeemed us through the blood of His Son, a love that's adopted us as sons and daughters, a love that's called us by His own name and shared His name with us and tied our welfare to the sake of His own glory. This covenant love is stronger than the powers of flame and fire and even death itself can't keep us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Song of Solomon 8 verses 6 and 7, the beloved calls to her bridegroom and lover. This is what she says. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. This is the love that's ours. It's all ours in the covenant of Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your abounding grace. And we don't ask you to love us more. We couldn't dare do that after seeing these words. What we ask is that your spirit would open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see more deeply the love that you have set on us and will never remove from us in Christ. Father, for those who are walking through deep trials, deep providences, we pray there would be a special measure of your assurance this morning a special measure of reminding of your presence and your faithfulness. May you give 
courage to those who are weak and those who seem like they can't make it. May you give hope to those of us who struggle to see you as a loving God. And we pray for all those here who don't know Christ, who haven't turned to him in faith. We pray that your goodness would be drawing them to repentance. Drawing them into knowing you as their God and being called by you, your people. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.